So it's a bit of a family affair tonight. <coughs> Peter's read the passage that I'd like us to um, reflect on as a way of sort of uh, thinking about this last act of the biblical drama, which is one when, he, when uh, creation is finally healed of the afflictions that we've traced from Genesis 3 onwards through the story. The passage that Peter read is relatively unfamiliar, I think, but it comes from a very familiar chapter. In some ways, Romans 8 is one of the best known and the most loved parts of the New Testament. It opens with the wonderful assertion that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And it goes on, uh, if this is the thing that you're particularly keen on, to talk about what it means to walk in the Spirit. It closes with the reassurance that all things work together for good to those who love God and how nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. So the chapter is, is you know, in many ways quite familiar to us, but less familiar is the middle section which deals with the suffering and the redemption of creation. I mean, arguably, it's one of the most neglected yet the most significant passages in the New Testament. And I'm certainly very grateful that uh, the Apostle Paul decided to have this little uh, reflection on the healing of creation in the middle of the Epistle to the Romans because it gives a lie to the widespread view that the gospel is simply about how isolated individuals finally get to heaven, how they get saved. Uh, this passage, I think, proves that the Christian meta-story that we've been talking about is far more than just getting a few disembodied souls uh, into paradise, that the gospel is actually cosmic in its scope. It's about the restoration of the whole universe. It's about the salvation of the entire created order. This idea, I think, has acquired or is acquiring much greater relevance in our own day because of the serious ecological crisis that's confronting our world. For the first time in human history, the very survivability of humankind on Earth, perhaps the very survival of the planet itself, is under dire threat. The ecosystem that supports life on the planet is breaking down as a result of greed and abuse. We hear all the time of global warming and oil spills and environmental pollution and the destruction of rainforests and the rapid extinction of plant and animal species, which is perhaps causing irreparable damage to the ecosystem that permits life to exist. Add to that the burgeoning of the world's population, in the, especially in the third world, where 80% of the world's population lives, but combined with the excessive consumption of the Western world. So the Western world uh, constitutes about 20% of the global population, but consumes 80% of the world's resources. So you put those two facts together, and population is threatening to exhaust the Earth's assets. And if all that's not enough, then weapons of mass destruction have been stockpiled around the world that are sufficient to destroy the entire planet many times over. Even conventional weapons, investment in them, contributes to environmental injustice. Uh, the use, for example, of depleted uranium in the shells that say, Israel used when it bombed Gaza leaves behind a, a pollutant that goes on to affect generations. Now, these figures are a wee bit out of date, but they'll give you an idea of, of how the, the global arms race contributes to uh, environmental devastation. In 1998, the United Nations Development Programme decided to do some sums to work out what it would cost above current levels of expenditure to meet the world's development needs. 
So they've worked out that another, and this is all US dollars, another $9 billion would be enough to provide uh, sanitation and clean water for everyone on Earth. Another $12 billion would be enough to cover the reproductive uh, health services for all women worldwide. Another $13 billion would be enough to feed every person on Earth and to meet their basic health care requirements. And another $6 billion would be enough to provide a basic education for everyone. So add all those figures together, it came to $40 billion US dollars. That's one-fifth of the $200 billion the US government agreed in October 2001 to pay Lockheed to build the new F-35 fighter jet. Five times as much as is needed to meet the world's development needs. In 2015, and I did update these figures, in 2015 the world spent $1,657 billion on military expenditure, of which the United States accounts for 43%, which is six times more than China spends on defence. And US military spending has increased by 81% since 2001. So the military realities contribute, I think, to threatening the world's survival, even if we're not thinking about nuclear weapons and chlorine gas and all those other horrific things. Now, as thoughtful Christians have tried to come to terms with the environmental crisis that is facing the world, they've shown new interest in what the Bible has to say about creation and humanity's place in creation and the future of creation. And they've given special attention to obvious passages, Genesis 1 and 2, which we've also looked at in this series with this emphasis on human stewardship of creation and the way that that's spelt out in the social legislation of the Old Testament. talked about the, uh, the role of, uh, of jubilee and sabbatical um, regulations in the Old Testament law as a way of, of articulating this stewardship for creation that God entrusts to humanity in Genesis 1 and 2. Or God's dealings with Noah, being called the first endangered species project in human history. And the way in which the covenant that God enters into with Noah extends to, this is Genesis 9, every living creature that is with you, the birds, the domestic animals, and every animal of the earth. Or the celebration of, the, of creation that we find in the Psalms and in the wisdom literature. I think there are a few, if you ever get the idea that the New Testament is always superior to the old, read Job 38 and 39, where, where you know, God asks Job whether he's there when the mountain goat gives birth and does he know where the snow comes from. It's the most uh, beautiful reflection on God's care for creation. Or the descriptions of the future transformation of creation in the Old Testament prophets and in apocalyptic literature. Or the frequent references to creation in the parables of Jesus, uh, which we tend to overlook. Um, but are certainly uh, very evident in his parables. And to all that material needs to be added Paul's profound reflections on creation and the relationship between Christ and creation and the future of creation, such as in Colossians 1, where Paul says of Christ, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Uh, firstborn there means the most important. It doesn't mean he's the first creature. For in him all things in heaven and earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And through him God was pleased to reconcile all things, whether on earth or in heaven, to himself. So if all things have been created through Christ and for Christ, 
then surely that's the only ultimate and the only necessary justification Christians should need for ecological concern. Because the planet that we humans are abusing and threatening to destroy has been created through Christ and for Christ. So if we love creation's Lord, then surely we must love uh, the Lord's creation. But of all that material, I'm going to suggest that it's Paul's comments on creation in Romans 8, the passage that Peter read, that are the most remarkable of all. A passage that speaks of the hurt and the healing of creation and the implications this has for believers today. And I want to highlight sort of three features of this text um, of, of Paul's perspective on creation and its future. And then if we have time, and I'll take my watch off, but I probably won't even look at it. Um, look at some implications for uh, Christian witness today. So three things about the way Paul speaks of creation in this <coughs> passage. The first is that he imagines that creation has a voice. It's quite striking how he personifies creation. He speaks of creation in personal categories. He speaks, for example, in verse 21 of it waiting with eager longing. And the image is like a child standing on its tiptoes waiting to see something come down the street. Or of how it is in subjection and in bondage, like a prisoner of war in forced servitude. Or, and I'll come back to this in a moment, of it groaning in labour pains, like a woman giving birth. So personification as a literary device adds impact and vividness. But it also shows that for Paul, nature is not some meaningless material thing that has just been thrown up by accidental evolutionary forces. On the contrary, it has a voice. It proclaims a message. It sings the praises of its creator. Listen to these words from Psalm 19 and the, and the interesting way in which verbs of speech are used when speaking of creation. The psalmist says, The heavens are telling the glory of God, and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night declares knowledge. Then he says, but there is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard, yet their voice goes out throughout all the earth and their words to the end of the world. So not sort of ordinary words, but nonetheless words, the words that creation uses to speak of its creator. If you want to put this into theological jargon, which I'm sure you don't, but you would say that we would say that creation mediates revelation that the natural order reveals truths about God. In Romans 1.20, Paul says that God's eternal power and divine nature are understood and seen through the things he has made. And to me, this doesn't just mean that uh, God's existence is proven by the things that God has made, but there is something about God's being, God's character, that is also disclosed in the creation, that the creation is a portrait and a voice of God, a beautiful and eloquent, even a loquacious medium of divine self-disclosure. And if that is true, and I guess in our kind of utilitarian sort of mechanistic uh, culture where creation is just something we use for other purposes, this is a bit of a challenge. It certainly is for me and probably for you to, to think of it in the, this, this more um, personal and disclosive way. If it is true then surely we need to train our ears to hear the voice of creation, to learn to let the order and the beauty and the prolific abundance of creation teach us something about the creator 
about God's goodness and love, and especially, and this is the thing the psalmists often reflect on, God's faithfulness. Every day the sun gets up. Uh, There's a a structure and order to creation that speaks of the being of God. So creation has a voice. But this needs to be balanced with another truth that comes through this passage, which is, and we've, we've reflected on this in our series, creation also has a problem. According to Genesis, God created humanity to be so entwined with the natural order that when sin entered the human realm, it kind of ricocheted into the non-human realm as well. So in the curse of Genesis 3, God says to Adam and Eve, Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Out of the ground you were taken, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So in the sort of pictorial image of of Genesis 3, with the entry of sin into human experience, the relationship between humankind and the natural world became dysfunctional. On the one side, humans became greedy and abusive towards the environment, and we know that. On the other side the earth became an unpredictable basis for human life and resistant to human habitation. It'll produce thorns and thistles as you try to make a living out of the ground. It's going to resist your your stewardship. Now in Romans 8, when Paul reflects on the problem in creation, he sees it as a combination of three things. One is frustration. Verse 20, creation was subjected to Frustration, or some translations say futility. It no longer serves the purpose for which it was created as fully as God intended. God's purposes with creation have been frustrated because of sin. The second reality is corruption. Paul speaks of creation being in bondage to decay. Now, in Romans 5, Paul sees this from an anthropological point of view and talks about how humanity has fallen under the power of death so that, so that um, human bodily life comes to an end. But material creation has also fallen victim to weakness and death and disease and violence and destruction. And the third image that Paul uses to describe the problems with creation is pain. He speaks of creation groaning in labour pains. He likens the sufferings of creation in the present to a woman's labour pains in giving birth. It's a very common uh, Jewish metaphor, and it's a really revealing metaphor, because it conveys both the intensity of the pain, the present pain, and its temporary nature. So the pain of giving birth, um, I've only observed, Uh, is extreme. Yet women willingly and surprisingly repeatedly go through it because it's temporary and because it leads to a new creation, to the birth of a little Jackson. And in the same way, Paul thinks of the agonies of creation, the pain, the sickness, the death, the violence, the destruction that happen, sometimes through human abuse, such as war, but sometimes through nobody's fault, such as earthquakes and floods and tsunamis and disease. These pains 
are intense. They're real. But without minimising the intensity of the pain, Paul sort of spins it in a positive direction by seeing it as the temporary labour pains that are going to give birth to a new creation. Which is why this whole passage is shot through with the sense of promise, of hope, and of joyous confidence in the future. So Paul begins by saying, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory about to be revealed to us. Which leads to the third perspective that Paul brings to creation, which as well as having a voice and having a problem, it also has a future. So what is this hope for the future that he's speaking about? What is this glory that is about to be revealed to us that gives Paul such a sense of confidence? Well, it is nothing less than the restoration of the entire created order to a condition that is freed from the frustration and the death and the suffering and the decay that it currently suffers. Verse 21, creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labour pains for this to happen until now. Now, with this audience or this congregation, I should say, I don't need to labour this point, but in many, in many settings you would have to labour it. Paul does not speak of the destruction of the created order and its replacement with something different. Now, from text in First Peter, people assume that that's what's going to happen, that the world's going to be destroyed, the lucky few are going to be raptured off to another place, and then God's going to start all over again. That's not salvation. You can't destroy something and save it at the same time. If you destroy it, you're not saving it. If you're saving it, you're not destroying it. Paul speaks not of the destruction of the created order, but of its liberation in order to become something that God always intended it to be. It's a restoration, it's not a replacement. God does not intend to trash the planet. It has a glorious future. Material creation will share with humanity in the redemption that Christ has wrought. And it's the certainty of this reality that gives Paul such great hope. He can view present pain positively because he knows for certain that change is coming, that freedom is assured. He knows for certainty that change is coming, freedom is assured. But how does he know? How he, can he be so certain? How can we be certain? How can we remain hopeful in face of pain and death and struggle and ecological devastation? I was at a workshop during the week and at the end of the workshop we had to bring a symbol of hope uh, to, the, to, the, to the circle. And afterwards I was talking to one of the participants who explained to me that she doesn't, she doesn't know what hope is. She doesn't know how to make sense of hope. It's just she's very attracted to Buddhist meditation because you sort of detach from the present and you don't have any illusions about the future. Paul, however, is full of hope when he faces 
the circumstances that he sees around him, and they were, you know, they were terrible as much as, as they are today. So how can he be so sure about all this stuff? Well, it's not just wishful thinking. Paul is so hopeful for the future salvation of the world because of his concrete experience of what, in verse 23 of Romans 8, he calls the first fruits of ultimate redemption. So he uses this agricultural metaphor of the first fruits. Now, when I was preparing this talk some time ago, um, I typed in the word first fruits into my uh, computer uh, text, and I discovered that Paul uses this metaphor of first fruits in connection with three things. There are three realities that Paul, in different places, refers to as the first fruits of redemption. I knew of two of them already. The third one was a real surprise to me. Still is. But the first thing he uses this metaphor in connection with is the resurrection of Jesus. So in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul describes Jesus' bodily resurrection from the dead as the first fruits of those who have died. We can know that God plans to redeem material creation because he redeemed Jesus' material body from the dead, which is why the empty tomb story in the Gospels, and all four Gospels have an empty tomb story, is so important. The resurrection is important in Christian faith not because it proves life after bodily death, because you don't need a resurrection to do that, most religions believe in the idea of the soul or the spirit going to some other place. You don't need a bodily resurrection for life after death. The reason why the resurrection of Jesus is so important in Christian faith is because it is seen to inaugurate a new form of material existence free from subjection to death and decay. So Paul puts it in a nutshell in Romans 6. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has lordship over him. So, for Paul, the bodily or material nature of Christ's resurrection provides a kind of down payment on the eventual redemption of all material creation. All material creation will benefit from this transformation of materiality that happened in the resurrection of Christ. So that's one thing that gives Paul his absolute confidence in future salvation. The second thing is the gift of the Spirit. So the second reality that Paul uses the idea of first fruits for is the gift of the Holy Spirit, because for Paul, the Christian age is supremely the age of the Spirit. The Spirit brings about a liberation from the rule of sin and the rule of the law, or, or the rule of sin that Paul discovered the law was unable to deal with, it brings an inner moral freedom and a sense of spiritual renewal. It brings a profound awareness of God's love. So in Romans 5, Paul talks about how the Spirit has been poured into us. The love of God has been poured into us through the Spirit. It's like a, it's a really, as I always think of sort of liquid chocolate, this kind of experiential reality being poured in, not just sort of dabbed on your forehead. It's poured in through the gift of the Spirit. And this sense of openness and communication with God. And for Paul, this is all just the first fruits. Because this glorious liberty that believers now experience in their inner lives through the gift of the Spirit will eventually spill over to the glorification of their outer lives as well. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, 
He who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through his spirit that dwells in you. So it's a sort of nuclear charge that has been poured into us will eventually lead to the redemption of our mortal bodies. So those are two things that I already knew about when this metaphor of first fruits came up. The third thing was a surprise. The third thing that Paul describes as the first fruits of future salvation in 2 Thessalonians 2 is the existence of the church, the community of faith, the first fruits of salvation, the first instalment of redeemed humanity. Because the church in its day was a new kind of inclusive egalitarian human community that did not exist prior to its birth. A community in which slave and free, male and female, rich and poor, Jew and Gentile, all belonged on the basis of their simple humanity. It was a new kind of human community. And Paul saw this as the first fruits of redeemed humanity. The first evidence, if you like, of the possibility of people to dwell together in peace despite all the things that mark out their identity. And the same thought occurs in Romans 8. Paul says, Creation will be set free to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God, of the members of the community of faith. So it's these three concrete realities, the resurrection of Jesus, the gift of the Spirit, and the existence of the church, that give Paul this irrepressible sense of hope in face of present distress. The pain is real, but from the eye of faith and in light of these three eschatological realities, Paul can only but view present pain as temporary and transitional, like being in labour, because this new day is coming. So, that's Romans 8. What, what do we take from this for Christian lifestyle, Christian mission, Christian worship today? Let me just pick out four things. The first is that I think it is an invitation to contemplation, this perspective on creation. Because the passage begins with Paul sort of contemplatively reflecting on the issues. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of the present are not worthy to be compared. If creation has a voice, if it reveals the character and the power and the goodness of the Creator, then one way to listen to that voice is through contemplation, which a friend of ours has defined as a long, loving look at reality. A long, loving look at reality. And it's an image that I remember Margaret once using, and it's always stayed with me. It's like going for a walk with a little child, and it stops to watch a spider run across the pavement. That's contemplation, this utter fixation on this, the reality in front of it. And Jesus, too, invites a contemplation of creation in the Sermon on the Mount. Consider the birds of the air, how your heavenly Father feeds them. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. Will not God look after you? more than he does even after them. So I think the passage invites us to train our eyes and our ears to see in creation the presence and the character of God reflected. I mean, I sometimes say to people who have said to me, well, I, where's the evidence for God's existence? And I say, well, how about starting with everything that exists? I mean, that's a good starting point to me, everything that exists. 
to me is evidence for the existence of God and more than for the existence of God but for the character of God as well. The second thing is that this passage offers us a perspective on pain because in three different places Paul speaks of groaning. In verse 22 he speaks of creation groaning and labour pains awaiting deliverance. In verse 23 he speaks of Christians groaning inwardly awaiting the redemption of their bodies. And in verse 26 he speaks of the spirit interceding with groans too deep for words. So he pictures this sort of threefold fellowship of pain between creation, believers and the spirit of God. The sufferings which believers endure are an inevitable part of belonging to a creation that still suffers. We have begun to experience the saving power of God, but it's only the first fruits. We still remain in these mortal bodies that grow old and tired, that get sick and that decay, that can be starved and abused and tortured and killed. Believers are never guaranteed immunity from sickness or pain or death despite what some of our churches would suggest. We cannot be given such immunity because we still belong to an unrestored, pain-wracked creation. When we suffer as believers, it's not because we have been personally selected by God to suffer some dose of reformative pain. We suffer because creation suffers and we are part of creation. And that ought to sensitise us to the suffering of others. At this workshop I was at, it was on trauma, 23 people, um, and a number of different exercises, people shared their experience of trauma. And it was just a reminder that everybody's life is so full of suffering. I mean, some people, just extraordinary amounts of suffering that they have endured. It's just what it means to be human and to live in this unredeemed, yet to be fully redeemed world. But we can share in that pain with this stubborn and I at times think almost irrational sense of hope. A hope that human suffering is temporary and transitional, that ultimately creation will be healed. And in the meantime, even in the midst of our suffering, we know, as Paul says at the end of the passage, that all things work together for good to those who love God. Not that all things that happen to us are good, but that all things that happen to us, God is at work to bring good for us. That even in the midst of the tragedies and the evils and the disasters and the grief that happen, we can believe and know that God is working to bring good out of evil and to move creation to its ultimate place of redemption. I'm going to read you an abbreviated, it's only a page and a half, it's something I read in, a, in a, actually a philosophy book when I was working on Compassionate Justice in the introduction, and uh, I'd like to read it to you just as a, as a, a kind of um, illustration of being able to experience, in I say, almost in a rational way, the presence of, of joy and hope in the midst of suffering. So the author, he's talking about his own experience, says this, and I, again, it's a bit of an abbreviation, but it's, it's, um, you'll get the point. Walking along Temple Street in New Haven one March day in 1979, I heard the screeching of tyres, then a loud thump, followed by horrific howling. 
I turned to see a beautiful black Labrador retriever staggering along the side of the road with blood dripping from its nose and mouth. It was instantly clear that this dog was doomed. Its internal injuries from being hit by the car, which did not stop, were so severe that nothing could be done. It was only a matter of time, and time seemed to clot more and more slowly with each, with each high-pitched yelp from the beast. It obviously did not know how to die, because it came up to two of us and seemed to look imploringly into our eyes from some sort of explanation. I suddenly felt the need to beg pardon. Just two months before, I had written a graduate seminar paper arguing that animals don't feel morally significant pain. Since meaningful pain requires the ability to be self-conscious, to know oneself as the ongoing subject of intentions and sensations across time, I reasoned, no subhuman brute can technically be said to suffer. How can one wrongly injure what is not fully sentient or personal? Now, confronted with the lab's agony, I saw how absurdly callous and callow this opinion was. I did not go through any elaborate process of reasoning. I simply felt for the dying dog, so obviously in pain and so needlessly undone. As it slumped down in the path uh, of grass, I was touched by its misery and viscerally felt ashamed of myself. Several emotions overtook me. I wanted to apologise to the dog for the hit-and-run driver as well as for my own moral stupidity. I wanted to upbraid God, in whom I was not sure I believed, for making creatures so vulnerable and people so careless. Throughout it all, I kept saying to myself, I am watching my own death. There is no reason why this should not be me, and one day will be me. But then, to my vast surprise, out of nowhere but immediately everywhere, I intuited an infinitely loving presence, watching and upholding us all. I seemed to hear a still but not so small voice and tone, take care of my children. Immediately, my academic convictions about projection theory were turned on their heads. I was the created projected personality, while the other was the only real, real person. At that moment, I could not doubt that I was addressed by one larger than anything human or natural, individual or collective. One on whom I, the dog, the bystanders, the heedless driver, the blades of bloody grass, the very stones in the pavement, utterly depended. And I knew more surely than I knew my own name that should this one withhold for a moment his unconditional love for me and the world, we would instantly cease to exist. We were sustained by a storyteller of ineffable beauty and goodness, and he expected something of me. More accurately, I felt charged with sin, forgiven, then charged with acting as forgiven for others. The dog finally keeled over completely, exhaled a low rattle, and died. He was neither a happy ending nor a fulfilled theodicy, but my life had been changed. I had no answer to the problem of evil, but I had been given a glimpse of a love that makes evil at once intolerable 
and endurable. A love that is a goad to action, yet also a remedy for sorrow. I did not begin to believe in a just God in spite of natural tragedy and human wickedness. <coughs> Rather, I sensed a divine anguish, yet sublime resoluteness in the midst of these dark realities. And I was temporarily delivered from the overwhelming worry that death renders life pointless. Over 19 years after the fact, it is not more yet no less possible to construe the Temple Street visitation as illusory. But from the black lab, I learned that we can and should love the creatures of the world for their own sakes, not merely for God's sake or the neighbours or one's own. Call it whatever you want, non-rational life matters as such. Even lives that really cannot feel pain, such as redwood trees, have an integrity that must be honoured. I remain a supernaturalist who believes in a real deity partly because of, but partly in spite of, the natural world and natural forces. A stable faith begins, I am convinced, with trust in the holiness of God, experienced in the Spirit, then presumes the world to be at least potentially good and orderly because it is fashioned by a loving creator and inhabited by creatures made in that creator's image. A perspective on pain. Thirdly, the text, I think, offers us an encouragement with prayer. Because when we experience pain, or when, which I think is actually probably more challenging for us, when we're overwhelmed by the agonies of the world around us, the war and the famine and the disease and the child abuse and the Syrian atrocity, as people of faith, we instinctively turn our hearts to God. But when we try to pray about a situation like Aleppo, what do you say? Words fail us. Because, as verse 26 puts it, we don't know how to pray as we ought. The words seem so feeble in the face of the immensity of human pain and suffering and injustice. But our inability to find the words to pray is compensated by the activity of the Spirit who, verse 27, intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And the Spirit's intercession doesn't depend on words, it takes place, Paul says, in a groaning too deep for words. It takes place in that deep lament that is generated within our heart and gut when we face the reality of suffering. And I find this very, very helpful because when I feel overwhelmed by confusion and despair such as we see in Syria and I can't find what words to pray for the children who are pulled out of the rubble or for the pilots who fly the jets. I think it's enough now just to direct that feeling of lament and sorrow and, and, and um, horror, just to direct that to God, believing that in that slight feeling of anguish that we share in, that the Spirit is praying in and through that, in and through our pain, is praying for us and through us for the world. Which brings us to the last thing that this passage, I think, gives us, which is a call to doing justice. 
Romans 8 proclaims the restoration, not the destruction, of the created order. It's meant to give us a sense of hope and courage in face of the pain and the frustration and the death that afflict the present age. But surely it's also intended to incite us to action, to inspire us to a lifestyle that is consistent with our future hope. Christian hope is a lot more than an attitude of optimism. Christian hope finds expression in actions that bear witness, however modestly, <laughs> you know, incredibly modestly, but bear witness to God's healing purposes with his creation and that maybe contribute in some tiny way even to its achievements. Of all people, Christians ought to be the ones who are most concerned about issues of war and peace, about environmental destruction and overpopulation. We ought to be most concerned because we know the story. We know creation's destiny. We love creation's Lord. We have witnessed the creator's suffering for the redemption of his world. Surely we ought to be the ones who are most concerned to care for the environment, to oppose war, to avoid waste, as a witness to and a celebration of God's passionate love for his world and God's promise to put right all that is wrong on the earth. To hope for creation's redemption, but to be indifferent now to its destruction, is not to live consistently with the truth of the gospel. It's a charge that Paul raises in Galatians 2 against uh, Peter and Barnabas. You're not acting consistently with the truth of the gospel. What you're doing and withdrawing from Gentiles is inconsistent with the gospel you came to proclaim. Uh, and that could be said of us in so many ways today uh, that the church lives inconsistent with its own message. So from this passage, may God help us to live lives, to nurture the values, um, to, to embrace the actions that enable us to live today in a way that is consistent with his redemptive purposes for the created world, which is, according to Genesis, the work of his fingers and the delight of his eyes. So let me finish with a really familiar text, but I guarantee you only know the first half of it. For God so loved the world, for God so loved the world, that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. What's the next verse? Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world. I think that's amazing. God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that through him the world might be saved. That's the end of the story of scripture. Okay, good. Do you believe it? Yeah. <laughs>